I'd like to welcome everyone. God bless each and every one of you and all of our folks across the hinterlands of America and throughout the world today. To every Israelite who may be tuned in today and they can find us on Rumble, we are not only humbled by having this family here today, but also all the folks that will join us throughout America and end across the world today. We live in a very precarious, difficult, and unusual time of history. If ever there was a day, a time, ever there was an opportunity for us to take a moment and pray, this might be that moment. Let us pray. God our Father, great Jehovah Elohim of Israel, we are humbled today to be your covenant people. And we are eternally grateful that you entered into covenant with our father Abraham to make an unconditional promise that you would be his God the God of his issue through the promised child Isaac, that you would be their God forever and forever. And Lord God, that's pretty much all we have left to hold on to in our world today are the promises of God which we hold tenaciously to our hearts. We thank you for those promises. We humbly acknowledge that we, in this generation, have abandoned in so many ways your righteous laws and commandments. And so many Anglo-American Israelites and Anglo-Israel people across the face of the earth have forgotten the laws of our God and his commandments. And they have scorned in so many ways the God who has carved a path for them to give them the highest standard of living, to give them blessings unprecedented for the last 250 or 300 years. And Lord God, in our forsaking of your commandments, we now find ourselves, with each passing day, losing the great abundance, the heritage, and the blessings that former generations tirelessly worked to bring to pass. So it is today that we repent before you as a covenant body but we know that we have a lot of repenting to do, and we humbly ask you now. And we remember that verse in Joel chapter 2, verse 17. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord Jehovah, cry out between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O God. 
and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say, Where is their God? Merciful Father, grant now grace and mercy to your com company, company of remnant people, to the covenant people across America and the world. Lord, unite our hearts as one in Jesus Christ and the promises of his word, and we will forever and ever remember that all the praise and all the glory and all the honor forever and ever is attributed only to thee in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you today, beloved, and if you'd open your Bibles today to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, we would be more than grateful. And I want to thank everyone for opening your Bible to Hebrews chapter number 11 today. We'll begin reading here in a moment or two at verse number 8. Verse number 8, so just keep your finger there for a moment. <clears throat> I want to thank the theologians here today for giving careful consideration to this lesson because I'd like you to weigh in on this lesson and I may need to be corrected by the congregation. I will stand accountable to the congregation. I know that I'm accountable to my Father in heaven for sure. But I want to be accountable to this congregation and everyone here. So you please feel free to weigh in at the end of this lesson and tell me where I need your wisdom. I'm asking you to do that. I believe, beloved, today that we are pilgrims and strangers and we're living in a time of history when we are witnessing a very serious moment in time in our country's history. And that is true in every Israelite nation on the planet. There is no Anglo-Israel nation under heaven that is not facing tremendous challenges in our time of history. And of course, my urgent prayer for and on behalf of our children, our young people, our young adult families, and for all the congregation, is that we, as pilgrims and strangers in this world, living in a time of history when we feel more and more alienated from the past historical history of our people and how they lived. And we're thrust into a world now where a majority of all the people living are estranged from God. They are living outside of the boundaries of God's divine moral law. So we live in a very precarious time in every country where God's children, the Anglo-Israel, Germanic, Gothic, Israelite people are living. I'd like to remind the congregation this morning of one overwhelming point. 
just one little point. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we owe our allegiance to King Jesus Christ and not to any faltering political order, however wonderful that may be at any moment in time, we need to remember that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. That we are citizens of a kingdom that is yet to fill this earth, but will one day fill the earth. In the meantime, we are citizens of different countries and different places on earth. And our relationship to the political systems of those countries is tenuous and not trustworthy for long-term peace, safety, and security. So if you would just think about the shoes that Abraham and Sarah wore, the same shoes that Isaac and Rebekah wore, Jacob and all his family and Israelites throughout the panorama of history have never lived in an age and time when the security of the political order under which they lived granted them enduring, long-lasting peace. So I invite you now to Hebrews chapter number 11, and we'll proceed to read from this book, from Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 8. And I remind the congregation that when the Holy Spirit inspired St. Paul to write the book of Hebrews, it was written expressly, universally for the whole Christian world forever, but it had a special meaning for the, the generation of the first century because that world was filled with indigenous, Judean, Benjamite, Levite, Israelites who were looking for a kingdom to fill the earth in their time. They wanted that kingdom then. And St. Paul wrote this epistle to give them assurance that in their pilgrimage, they may, that they should not trust in a political order to bring them what they were looking for. They wanted a restoration of the kingdom. They wanted the Roman Empire to just be transitioned immediately into a different kingdom. And their wish was premature, of course. Together, let's read. I'd like to thank you boys and girls and everyone in the congregation. Let's lift up our voices today and read. And we'll stop at the end of verse 13. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise 
as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky for multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So I greet you today as strangers and pilgrims, walking in the shoes of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and all the great train of Anglo-Israel people that followed them in their journey. And today, beloved, I remind this congregation that in the book of Philippians, there is a statement that I think is really important. It's found in, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And it says that our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I'd like to mention is that word citizen, that word conversation there can equally read citizenship. Our citizenship is not in this world. Our permanent citizenship is in a kingdom. Abraham and Sarah, Hebrews eleven ten. looked for a city. They looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The title of this little talk is In Search of the Eternal City. And a question I have for you. Are you in search of the eternal city that gripped the mind and the heart of your patriarchs so very long ago? And I pray that the love of that city is still on your heart. Now, Abraham and Sarah and all the train that followed them knew that they were put on this earth for a mission and a purpose to raise up a witness to the truth of their God. They were not promised great peace and prosperity, but they were promised and given assurance that the God who had given them life would see them through every difficult time that would face them in all their sojourns. So they, they had a permanent loyalty to a city, a kingdom, a God 
that would one day fill the earth and make it right and make it perfect. And they knew then that life on this earth, at best, would be difficult. It would be treading uphill more than it would be downhill. More days of struggle than days of peace and love and tranquility. But at the end of the journey, the promise is eternal citizenship in a wonderful kingdom that will have no end. In Hebrews 11, verse 16, the theme is continued with the idea that he hath prepared for them a city. Now the Bible speaks very clearly of a city, of an eternal city. It's called the New Jerusalem. Abraham and Sarah had the idea of a New Jerusalem in their mind. And I'm sure that, though I cannot say I can confirm this, that they truly knew that that glorious city was the ultimate and final glorious end to which every Christian is moving. And I believe that Paul Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress had that city in mind that Christian was looking for. The eternal city, that new Jerusalem. But before the new Jerusalem, there comes a millennial kingdom of a thousand-year millennial reign, and you're familiar with that. The eternal city comes after the thousand-year millennial reign. So we might ask the question, well, how do we know that? How do we know that the eternal city follows the thousand years of millennial rule? Well, we know the Bible teaches us very plainly and clearly in Revelation 20 that there will be a literal reigning of Christ on this earth for 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000 years, there will be no more death. And then we will be ready for that eternal city. But let's, let's think for a moment. And I ask you now to think about a verse in Revelation 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, verse 4 says this. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. No more death in that city. Neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. I call your attention. Dear church this morning. The idea that death does not pass from the earth until the city comes. So there's death in the millennial kingdom. But then 
we could ask the question, if that eternal city, that great new Jerusalem, that God says is going to come down from heaven to fill the earth, to be the capital of his kingdom, how do we know when that's going to happen? Well, we can know that, beloved, because death does not pass from the earth until the end of the millennium. So let's prove that by turning to Revelation 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, there was found no place in them. And I saw the dead. Now this is the end of the millennial reign. We're talking about something that's coming at the end of the millennium. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to his works. And death and hell. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Verse 14. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see then that death did not come to an end until the end of the millennium. So the, the eternal city that we speak of today follows the millennium. That's exactly what the book of Revelation chronologically delivers. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, 20. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And then comes the city. Now, with those thoughts in mind, beloved, keep in mind that all through the panorama of history, our people, while living on this earth, have been kingdom-focused. They were never welded to a given political order. Though they lived under many different kinds and models of political rule, and they were called to be good citizens of that political order, because God himself ordained the political order, and he ordained the political order for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those that did good. That's the, the purpose of government. It doesn't always follow that principle, does it? Now, through the, through the course of time, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to this, to the people that lived in Judea, in Jerusalem, he said, fear not, little flock, 
Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's Luke 12, 33. We pray every Sabbath day a beautiful thought, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now there are a lot of people who are called kingdom now, people that believe we're in the kingdom. The last time I checked, I didn't believe that San Francisco was a good representation of a kingdom. So I don't think the kingdom is here yet, but I believe the people of the kingdom are here. There's a generation of kingdom-seeking people who are citizens of that kingdom right here and now because their loyalty is to the king of that kingdom and to his law. So I'd like to remind our congregation today that while we live in a time of great spiritual falling away, we live in a time of moral decadence, we live in a time when wickedness prevails, and yet in the middle of that wickedness, we still press a button and wash our clothes with electricity. In the middle of this moral decadence, God is so merciful, He still lets people turn on a dishwasher. In the middle of such moral corruption, we'll go home today, or we'll go to the, to the cafeteria for a potluck, and there'll be many choices of food spread on the table. We live in abundance, and the mercy of God is looking at the wickedness, but He's still blessing us in so many ways. Are we grateful for those blessings in the midst of such grievous, egregious wickedness? I'm not sure that I would have the patience and mercy of a loving God. I would want to exercise the omnipotent power of a sovereign God in a much quicker way than God is. But God's judgment is upon us. The mills of God grind slow but exceedingly fine. And God's truth is marching on. Be assured of that. And with His truth comes judgment. We live in a day and time when God has been abandoned, rejected. His law is scorned. There are people today who may have a Ph.D., but they will laugh and scorn any mention of God's eternal law. Because God and His law have been utterly abandoned in our generation. Now there's every indication, beloved, that if you read Romans chapter number 1, 
that we have followed the pathology of that chapter down to a letter. Every reason to believe, scripturally, that we are a nation that God has given over to reprobation, delusional thinking, and craziness. And I believe that our culture confirms that. So, here we are, we're living in a nation that's under divine sanctions, and God draws the noose a little tighter all the time, waiting for repentance. Waiting for the repentance of His people. In a country where there's runaway inflation, a country without borders, a country that is helplessly in debt. A country where mob rule now operates openly and freely. There is no indication of remorse or sorrow or repentance that is observable in our country. So let's go back in time, beloved. Let's go back for a moment in time to the people that lived, the Christians that lived hundreds of years ago in Europe, a time when America was unknown, Australia unknown to the Anglo-Israel world. And in that time of history, the Roman Empire prevailed. And the early Christians lived under a political regime that was centered in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire that essentially ruled the then known world. By the time we come to the end of the fourth century, the country of Rome was being overrun by Anglo-Israel hordes that were pouring in from Europe and challenging the northern borders of the Roman Empire at every critical point. And they were being hard-pressed by the Huns who were invading Europe almost simultaneously 400 years after the birth of Jesus. So the Huns are coming behind the Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Gothic tribes. They're being pushed out of their homeland and they're coming up against the perimeters of the Roman Empire, and between the year, let's say, 376 and 476, in that 100 years, the great imperial Roman Empire was being invaded by your ancestors, the Anglo-Saxon European tribes of ancient, ancient European history. 
You remember reading about the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Franks, the Anglos, the Saxons, the Burgundians, the Vandals, and just a whole lot of other fierce, blonde, fair-skinned people that were determined to penetrate the Roman perimeters of government and authority. And the Roman Empire was helpless. They had soaring inflation. They had political corruption. They had interracial mixing because they had invited slaves into the country much, much earlier, and there was a lot of intermingling of the blood. They had open borders. They had soaring inflation, soaring debt. The Roman legions were scattered all over. They were trying to police the then known world. Rome was in horrific shape, very much like America today. In fact, one could almost say not too much difference. So, beloved, by the year 476 A.D., the Roman Empire collapsed when these Anglo-Israelite warriors plunged their made their way into the city of Rome and plundered, took control of the city. Now, before that time had ever occurred, way back in 313, a white leader, a white Roman emperor named Constantine, who has received a lot of bad publicity in the writings of modern historians. He's got a bad name among many Christians living today in contemporary America. But we need to remember that it was Constantine the Great, whose mother, Helen, was a Christian. She, I believe, was born in Britain. They were she was a Christian woman. Constantine had converted to Christianity. I don't know the sincerity of his heart. But under the sign of the cross, he had become the victor of the, over other Roman legions and had conquered and had taken his place as the emperor. When he issued the Edict of Milan, he gave Christianity equal standing with all of the other major religions, primarily Mithraism. So from 13, 313 A.D. forward, the bloodbath that had been going on for 300 years came to an end. Now, if Constantine never received any credit but that, that's enough for Christians just to keep their mouths shut and not berate that man down to 
his grave. Because, yes, he had a lot of flaws. But look how God used him to stop the bloodbath of 300 years of almost uninterrupted persecution of Christians. Now, when that Edict of Milan came about in 313 A.D., it allowed the church to flourish. Now, yes, it was also a time when it gave an opportunity for heretical teaching to come into the church. Yes, it, we acknowledge that. But we also acknowledge that because that church had been given liberty to flourish, when the Roman Empire began to fall, that church was all that was left standing with any stability. Now you may wonder today, do you know the greatest, the greatest thing in your life today is called a church. You have greater assurance that the church will stand than you have that America will stand. Because God said upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock is the divinity of Jesus that Jesus is God. He's not a creature of God. He's not just a prophet, not just a great teacher. He is God. And woe to anyone that does not acknowledge His deity. Because they're not Christian, not by any measure, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There is no salvation apart from the deity of Jesus Christ. Now living in that very unsettled time of history, Rome has collapsed under the weight of its own degradation, its moral degradation. The Christian, the family in Rome had become dissolved. The Romans were known for great strong families in their history. The family has, has always and will forever be the foundation of a great country. As the family goes, so goes the church. As the family goes, so goes the nation. And without strong families, you have neither a church nor a nation. Now, if you have strong families in a church... You can have a church when you don't have any confidence in a nation. And that's why building a family and holding on to a godly marriage and making a wonderful home for children 
is today and forever has been the single greatest mission for any man and woman on planet earth. And there'll never be anything that will be its superior. If you have a family, if you've got a good marriage, hold on to it. Secure it. Anchor it. And do nothing. God help you do nothing to disturb the security of that family and that marriage and that home. So the big question, beloved, it back then and still is, how do Christians, how do Christians relate to a world that's crumbling around them? What is the best pathway for them? When Rome was crumbling and there was a church that was growing stronger, there was a man living in Hippo, North Africa by the name of Augustine. You're familiar with Augustine. Augustine was born in 354 A.D., died in 430. And during this tumultuous time, when the Roman Empire was in disintegration, and Augustine could survey his country and see that the Anglo-Israel hordes pouring into Rome were replacing his own people. Would to God today that we had the Gothic tribes crossing our southern border. Would to God that would be true. We're not that fortunate. We have barbarian hordes that are non-white pouring across our border. During this tumultuous time in history, Augustine wrote, he wrote a treatise. You know the name of that. It's called The City of God. Now, you wouldn't agree with everything written in the city of God, but there's one overwhelming thread of truth in that wonderful treatise that you would agree with. Augustine wanted all people that were professing Christians to know that the power, the influence, and the favor of the political state Whatever blessings may be derived from a political state at a given time in history are always temporary, passing, and subject to change at any time. Christians, therefore, should always remember that their first allegiance is to God, obedience to His law, and therein lies their, their freedom. Their freedom is not to be gained through by, by any other means than obedience to God and His law. That's where freedom originates. That is how freedom is perpetuated. And if there's anything that will hold this church together, it will be humility and obedience to the law of God in our families in every way that we know how. 
So Augustine simply wanted to know that the political state, whatever blessings it might bring, would only be temporary, at best, transitory. And that our greater allegiance is to a kingdom, to a king. And that our hearts should be tied to the kingdom and the king that holds our highest allegiance. Knowing that the world we live in is tumultuous. It's changeable. Because every political order in a time of wickedness is just as wicked as the people that placed that political system in place. The book of Judges is a classic history of seven successive times in the history of Israel, ancient Israel, when the people flourished under a political, particular time of political leadership, and then the people would grow morally decadent and corrupt, the leader would fail them, they'd go into apostasy, into times of slavery, and God would raise up a new leader because the hearts of the people came to a state of godliness and they cried out for deliverance. I don't know if there's a cry for deliverance in America today. If there is, I haven't heard it very loudly. Maybe. History shows us then, people, that when any generation places their hope and security in a political system, they can be highly disappointed. Highly disappointed. So we need to remember that. We do not identify with any political order for our security and our lasting and our lasting hope in this world. Our King is Jesus Christ. While we live in this world, we are undeniably living under a political order. But that political order can never be a replacement or a surrogate for God's kingdom. So we do not anticipate great things from the political order in America today. But we must remember, beloved, that we sit in the scope of a larger, better story. The story of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And in the end, all things will be put under His feet. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Then cometh the end, E-N-D, when He, Jesus Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, that comes at the end of the millennium. And verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And death comes to its end to its demise at the end of the millennium, as we read earlier in this lesson.
Therefore, beloved, while we know we may experience some, some goodness, some reprieve, some blessing in a fallen world under a political order, remember that it will be temporary, it will be passing, it will be transitory, and subject to change quickly. Think back to the year 2017. Please do that. 2017 to 2019, we had a reprieve from Barack Obama's reign of eight years, 2008, all the way to 2016. Before that, George Bush. We've been living under corruption for a long, long time. In 2017, we had a change of a new regime. Under the new leadership in 2017, 2018, and 2019, we became energy independent. Gas prices were low. We were the energy producing nation of the world. We had no wars, no new wars, and the financial tide of every American was rising. The income, the spendable income of every American family had risen from between three and $5,000 across the board to every family. Those were years of real hope and promise. But in that time, there was no change in the moral behavior of the American people. Abortion continued on. Homosexual behavior flourished. Race mixing flourished. And there was no clear changing of the attitudes of the American people. In fact, half of the people despised the leader of that regime. And part of that group were planning his, the demise of the leader every day. What could they do to destroy the man that God had raised up to give us a reprieve? So, you know what happened in 2020. In March of that year, March 12, 2020, the World Health Organization announced a worldwide epidemic. It was really a pandemic, But nonetheless, it came, and with it, an abrupt change in the tranquility and the peace of the previous three years. In one day, one day, our temporary blessings disappeared. We entered into a lockdown. Fear, panic, hysteria gripped the American people and the world. And people began to wear masks. And here in 2023,
there are still people wearing masks. There are still people that live in fear. Four years after the lockdown. It's an amazing thing, human nature. So, our political fortunes that looked so good in 2017 through 2019 disappeared in one day. And still, America did not turn to God for an answer to the alleged plague. We depended, we depended on the CDC. We depended on the gurus dressed in white gowns to save us. So what do we gain from this, people? We gain from this to remember the words of Jesus in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. So we know that no political order on this earth will ever be a replacement or a surrogate for God's kingdom. Our allegiance is to a kingdom, not a political order. We have a responsibility as citizens under a given political system to be the best citizens we can be and to obey every law that does not forbid us from keeping God's law or ask us to do something that will be in violation of God's law. But we know that we are part of a larger story of people that are marching on to the ultimate victory when the nations and kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen and the seventh angel sounded. The seventh angel sounded. The trumpets were heard. And the great voices in heaven were saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall rule forever and ever. He shall reign forever and ever. Daniel said it this way, in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall be break in pieces all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 7, 18, And the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Praise God and praise God. So we bring this lesson to closure today, people, by reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is on his throne. He rules the nations of the earth. 
God is ruling over every nation where Anglo-Israel people live. God is not on vacation. He's very much alive. And our goal as a covenant body of people ought to be to live in godly humility and obedience to the law of God and do everything we can to be pleasing unto Him. Knowing that the political order at its very best, and we pray that it will be best, better than it is now, but however, the, whatever the future may bring, if there is a blessing ahead, it will be very transitory without repentance of people. So this leads us to the final question, what do you and I do now? How do you and I best spend our time in this present world? If you're looking to gather riches together, I got news for you. It's not a good time to do that. So how do you and I react? Well, we remember, people, that silence in the face of great evil is no virtue. And the Bible tells us at Acts 18, verse 9, beautiful statement, it says, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Your testimony of the goodness of God and His kingdom, your testimony of Jesus Christ and the truth is very urgently needed in the darkness of this world. So you should not remain silent to all family members, be it known unto you, that Jesus Christ is King. His kingdom is secure. And you at best ought to gather with your people in a church and praise that God. If for any reason Christians, professing Christians, are sitting at home having a grievance party, shame on you. Come out of your grievance. Join your congregation wherever they may be under any part of heaven and show yourselves a soldier. Be strong. Be brave. Be resolute. Do not let nuances in life take you down. Do not shipwreck, for goodness sake, though the waves beat against your ship. Remain steady. So be not afraid. Speak and hold not thy peace. And finally, the best way in the world for this congregation to please God and the best way in the world for us to receive God's blessing, help, and protection in days to come. And I believe it will be the way that we survive the four sore judgments of Ezekiel 14, 21. We will survive 
the famine, the sword, the noisome beast, and the pestilence or plague, because we are determined not to allow ourselves to be distracted from God's kingdom goal. We refuse to be distracted by all the challenging events of this world, but remain steadfast in our desire to build a strong marriage. And if you are a married person today, I would ask that you and your wife give attention, devotion to each other, and build that marriage stronger than you think it is today. Reinforce it where you think it is strong. Add another bulwark of defense at that point. And if you believe your marriage has got a weakness, you attend to that weakness rapidly and quickly. Don't let a fracture appear in your marriage. And do not let your vision of a family disappear. If you're building a godly family, go for it. It's the best, most productive, most wonderful building endeavor that you can be engaged in. And finally, the marriage, the family, the multiplication and godly training of children, and then comes your church. And there ought to be a high degree of loyalty to your church. Not because it's flawless, not because it's filled with perfect people, or I wouldn't be here, neither would you. But because the church is built upon the rock of the divinity of Jesus Christ, and upon that rock the gates of hell shall not prevail. Let's be standing.